0: As we continue our This Morning series, over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the start of the Christmas story for, for Mary and Joseph separately. And there's lessons that we learned from looking at their experiences as they were confronted with the coming of Jesus Christ in their separate circumstances. In the one, we looked at Mary and, and the angel came to Mary and, and kind of told her what was going to happen to her and, and, and the events that were going to kind of create significant upheaval in her life. The angel came to her and, and said, you are going to bear a child, and this is who he's going to be, and this is what he's going to accomplish. So this, this young woman of 15 or 16 years of age who's betrothed to be married, who's not slept with her husband, is not has not had any sex, sexual relations, is going to bear a child. And she faced those circumstances, knowing how they would deeply impact her. The lesson we learned from that was how in her posture, in her position, she was able to find peace. And there was a reason why that peace came to her. The reason the peace came to her is because she understood who she was before God, that she was his servant in there for his service. But alongside of that, she understood the God she served, that he was gracious and merciful and that he would work things out for his glory and for her good. And so she was able to respond and say, let it be to me according to your word and find peace there. It's a lesson for all of us as we face the difficult times that we can or cannot control. That we go, Lord, this is what you're bringing into my life. May you be glorified in it. May may your glory be seen because I know you're going to bring good out of it as I yield to you. Joseph was kind of a different situation though, right? He was faced with this idea that the, the woman he was betrothed to um, was found to be pregnant. And so he had a choice to make, whether to continue with her or to set her aside. And he had come to his conclusion. and He made the decision. He said, listen, listen, we're just going to put her aside quietly. In other words, he was going to divorce her quietly and not make a big thing of it. But the angel came to him in a dream and said, Joseph, don't do that. Choose a different path. And so Joseph was concerned with the situation in which he had a choice, either to follow the direction of God or to go his own way. It was going to require of him courage to follow the plan of God that was, the, the angel said, conceived of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph made the courageous decision knowing that this is what God's plan was. And so he's going to trust him with it. The lesson we learned in that as individuals is that every one of us as Christians are gonna be called by God to do things that are going to be difficult. And it requires of us the courage to follow the path that God has before us, knowing that the path we're taking is conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so as we looked at both Mary and Joseph, each one of them separately was learning things about God and teaching us things about God as they faced the coming of Jesus Christ. Now this morning, we see Mary and Joseph's story coming together as the promised coming of Jesus becomes a reality. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, as we read this, we learn some important things about who this child was going to be. The reference that Luke makes in this passage is to remind people and and, and to show people that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah to come. Why do we say that? It's Because he makes two very important declarations here. He makes the declaration that they were of the lineage, the house and lineage of David. When you, when you look at when you look at the, the the messianic prophecies prophecies of the Old Testament, this is to be the reality. This is to be true that the Messiah is to come from the house of David. The second thing we hear here is that he's to be born in Bethlehem. The prophecy that we see in Micah makes the declaration that the Messiah will be born in this little town of Bethlehem. And Isaiah 7 is the one that makes the declaration that he would be of the house of David. It says this, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So Luke is writing here, and he's saying, Listen, as Micah says, he's born in Bethlehem. And as Isaiah said, he's born of the house and lineage of David. It's, it's, I, think it's, I think it's important to note that both Mary and Joseph were of the lineage of David. That, that you look in, in the genealogies that are, that are described in Matthew and it describes the genealogy of, of, of Joseph. But here in the book of Luke, the genealogy lays out and, and gives the genealogy of, of Mary. She, 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 was a, she was a direct descendant of Boaz, who was a descendant of David, And so Jesus Christ, on both accounts, was directly from the line of David. Why was it important? Because it was to tell us he is going to be the king. The king that was always promised. That the one who was being born is the promised king of Israel. Now, I'm emphasizing that because I want you to hear that, and I want that to set in your hearts that Jesus Christ was not just a common birth, that Jesus Christ's birth was not just of some guy, but he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When you hear the story of his birth, keep that in mind. He was a king. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, this is a story, obviously, each one of us has heard over and over and over again. But I want you to really get the picture of what this was like. The great king that was promised, the king that for centuries upon centuries, all all of time was pointing to and all of prophecy was pointing to, was born In this way. He was born not in a palace. He was born not in a house. He was born not in an inn. But most likely, this king was born in a cave. There's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of biblical historians that that basically say that the the picture that we have of the manger scene is not really an accurate picture. That most likely this was this was just a cave behind a house. And that in this dark cave, there would be a trough that would be cut that would be known as the manger, where water would be filled or hay would be put in. And this is where King Jesus was born, in this humility. It's kind of a crazy scene when you really think about it. How many of you guys realize that when a child is born, it's not as neat and clean as the scene that is in the manger under your tree? I know this because I was there for the first time, my son was born. My son, Tommy, my my oldest was born. I was in the room when he was born for seven minutes. I literally was there for seven minutes because the the nurse looked up at me as my face went white and she said, I think you should leave, sir. (laughs) Just a drop of blood I saw and it almost put me out. But I made the mistake later on of coming back into the room a little bit too soon and I walked in and I Threw the curtain back, and what I saw before me looked like looked like a battlefield in the Civil War. <laughs> That's the birth we're talking about. Jesus Christ was born. This King, this one who was prophesied of that would be the King of Kings, was born in this cave in this way. And they would and and they would they would they would they would, they would wrap him in salt, and they would clean the baby in salt, and then they would wrap him in swaddling clothes, and he was laid in this cold trough where the animals would come and eat and drink. This is Jesus. This entire process indicates a humility of entrance. The the grand entrances of royalty was not what we see here. He was this king. Luke tells us in the Micah prophecy, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from from, from of old, from ancient days. He was the greatest of kings, the the most ancient of kings. He was going to be the one who ruled over all Israel, but he had no grand entrance. He he, he wasn't born in a a home. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born in a hospital. He wasn't attended to by doctors. He was born in a humble state. And the truth is, the state of humility was not simply the status of his birth, but it was the existence of, Of his life. Yes, he he wasn't born in a palace or born in a hospital or born in a home or even born in an inn. He was born in a humble state, like most of us talk about, most of us sing about in the Christmas time. But I want you to reflect on the fact that he wasn't just born there, he lived there. Later on, when 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 Joseph and Mary go to the go to the temple to give an offering after the birth of Jesus Christ, you know what they bring as their offering? Two turtle doves. Not a lamb, not a sheep, two turtle doves. It was the the offering of one impoverished. It was for those who had very little, and they would come and they would offer what little they could. He was was a man of of little influence. Not only was he not affluent, he had little influence. Think about the fact that when when they traveled around, there was nobody there that could go in and say, do you know who I am? Let me in. Or the relationships to be able to say, oh, we know who you are. Come on, let's take you in. He was a man who was born with little influence, with very little affluence, and he lived in that place. As I say, in, in Matthew chapter 13, we, we see the, the hoi polloi. We see those who have great wisdom and, and, and prestige look down on Jesus and denigrate him as simply the son of a carpenter. In Luke 9, Jesus himself describes the state of his life when he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, in his life, needed a miracle to pay his taxes. Right? Remember when tax time came, what did he do? He sent the disciples to go fish in the the sea and catch a fish and in it they would find a coin and that coin they would use to pay their taxes. He has no home. He's buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus came and lived a humble life. Now, as I say this, I want you to realize I understand that you probably know this already, that you've heard this. I mean, Every Christmas season, we, 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 see, we sing the song, away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. I know that most of us understand that Jesus Christ was born in a humble state. Most of us understand that he lived in a humble state. and We understand that he died in a humble state. So I'm not saying this because I'm trying to tell you something that you don't, you don't already know. But I'm bringing it to the, your, your attention because I want to ask you this question that I think maybe we haven't thought about. Why? Why was that the case? Why was Jesus born in a manger, in a cave somewhere? Why was Jesus live a life in which he had almost nothing? Why did he die in such a humble state? I mean, the reality is Jesus Christ could have been a middle-class person, couldn't he have? Couldn't he have been a middle-class person who walked the earth in middle-class existence and experience and still died on the cross for your sins and brought redemption to mankind? Couldn't he have been wealthy? Why couldn't he have been raised in a palace and ultimately ended his life on the cross, giving his life for our sins? Why did Jesus Christ live in a humble state? I want you guys to understand something. As I read Scripture, it appears to me to be very clear that this wasn't an accident That it didn't just happen by chance. Within the gospel story of of Christ, the method and the means of salvation and sanctification are intertwined. What I mean by that is is the methodology of his life is is intertwined with the humility of his death. They're important. They matter. It has meaning and purpose. When I look at at Philippians chapter 2, I hear and I see the very intent of the heart of God and more particularly, the heart of Jesus Christ himself to this state. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You hear the words of that? He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself. Each of these acts shows clearly an intention on his part as the plan of the Father to live a life of humble existence. Why? Why did he do that? We talk about it at this time of year. We sing about it at this time of year. But why did he do that? Why did he come as a servant and live as a servant and die as a servant and not the king that he was? I think when you reflect on this, it becomes pretty clear to me that there are two really important reasons that are revealed in the gospel story that I think need to affect not simply our view of the Christmas season, but our lives all year round. And the first is about, I think, revealing the purpose of his coming. One of the great traps of our human existence is what I would say called the naturalization of our affections. And what I mean by that is we become easily enamored with the offerings of this natural world. And we lose sight of the supernatural uh, blessings that are discovered uh, through Christ by his Holy Spirit. Simply put, in the flesh, we more readily desire the things of the flesh, and we rarely understand, let alone desire the things of the Spirit. Jesus himself made the declaration that flesh gives birth to flesh. Paul, in his epistles, made the declaration that, that the, 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 the flesh never seeks after, never desires even the things of the Spirit. So, so the natural momentum of our existence is towards a desire for a seeking of the things of the flesh. Jesus Christ understood that. And as a result, set out to combat the perception that he was coming to feed the desires of natural man. He proposed to define his intentions by his life. And in doing so, he would lead mankind to a different path. What I'm saying is Jesus understood this, and he realized that that if he came and he declared himself in in wealth, he declared himself in, 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 in this kingship, this natural kingship, what would happen is the heart of the people would think that's what he came to ultimately do. Think of the numerous times throughout his ministries he tried to get people to understand that he did not come to be the type of Messiah for which they were looking. The, the, the first century Jews had, had for generations looked for the second coming of David's reign. They believed for, that from the line of David would come this great king, and what this king would do was reestablish the glory that, that the nation of Israel enjoyed under the reign of David. They thought back to his reign and remembered with, with bittersweet emotion the time when their ancestors enjoyed military dominance, great wealth, even spiritual freedom eventually all culminating in the reign of Solomon and the establishment of his great temple. They contrasted that time with the centuries of, of persecution and occupation and spiritual oppression, which they had been suffering and which they were now suffering. They wanted nothing more than to see the boot of Rome removed from their necks and the wealth of that empire transferred to them. Jesus knew what their heart desired. And that's why he didn't just simply keep saying over and over again, my kingdom is not of this world. But he lived a life that never sought to grasp power and wealth in this world. His life became an illustration of the purpose of his coming and the nature of his calling. He understood then, and he understands now, that the lure of worldly pleasure for worldly beings is so strong that even with all of his teaching, his own followers struggle to grasp the intention of his coming. By his life, he shows us that his coming was not to provide for his followers power or prosperity or prestige and comfort in this world, but to call us to a life that transcends the lure and the riches of the flesh. He lived a life uninterested in the wealth of this world because he never wanted his message of spiritual renewal to be cheaply translated as simply come and get stuff. Unfortunately, as many in his day, many in our day still don't understand the intention of his coming. And as a result, what they do is they worship a false messiah in a very real way. The idea that we come to Jesus Christ so that we can have everything easy. We can have everything simple. We can be prosperous and healthy. And the reason why Jesus Christ comes into our lives is so that all things in this life will just be so much better, is a betrayal of the life that Jesus Christ lived. It is to ignore the intention he had, which is to declare for us, listen, it's not about the stuff. It's not about the things. It's about knowing me in deeper ways. Christ's coming is so much deeper than earthly pursuits. Whether you define that as wealth or power or security or acceptance or whatever you can imagine is what you want out of this. Jesus Christ promises a peace that passes all understanding. That means a peace that makes no sense to people because they look at the circumstances of your life and they go, how can you have peace in that? It's because of Jesus, not because of things. He promises a joy unspeakable and full of glory. He promises a hope eternal These are things that transcend what this life has to offer. And Jesus came humbly, he lived humbly, and he died humbly because he wanted us to learn the depths of joy and peace and hope that can be discovered in him apart from what this world had to offer. And the life he leads and the life he led was not simply to reveal the purpose of his coming, but to show us the pattern for our living. And that pattern of living will bring forth the purpose of his life in us. The image of Jesus as revealed in his humble life is meant to to embody and convey the work of Christ. And it's also meant to teach us the method by which he will save, renew, and sanctify us. This is what I mean when I say his life established a pattern of living that brings that purpose to life in us. His life revealed in our life. His being revealed in our being. When we embrace his life of humble sacrifice and selflessness, we are set free from the lure of worldly desires, able to be taught the great blessings of found in the spirit. We empty ourselves by his spirit of the burden of capturing and and protecting that which moth and thieves destroy. And we begin to learn more deeply the spiritual riches that are set before us. So what am I saying? I'm saying that Christ's life was not simply about defining his mission, but about showing us how we are to live our life on mission now I want to pause here and I want to explain something to you because you could take this you could take this in the wrong way so many times over the many centuries of the church we've we've developed or we've created a, a theology of poverty and I want you to understand that i'm not I'm not a spouse you know a, a theology of poverty one, one of the one of the great battles we have in the church I think is we, we tend to, to swing between two Um, to what I think are ideologies that are outside of the word of God. We tend to live in in a theology of poverty or a theology of prosperity. And what I'm here to talk to you about is not not about a theology of poverty or a theology of prosperity, but I believe the Bible teaches us a theology of provision. See, here's the thing. There is nothing inherently holy about you because you're in poverty. And there is nothing inherently righteous about you because you're in prosperity. And what we tend to do is we, we tend to fall into those, 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 those points of what I would, what I would call um, uh, idolatry. We, we look at our poverty as a means of saying, see how good I am, see how great I am. I'm willing to be in poverty and I'm living in poverty. Or we, we on the other hand, go, look how great I am. Look, look, how, look how wonderfully spiritual I am because God is blessing me and I have prosperity. But here's what the Bible teaches us. My God will supply all your needs. My God will be your provision. My God is your provider. He provides. Everything you have comes from Him. And then He calls us out of our excess to be instruments of provision for others. So as God gives you, what you do is you make the choice, you make the decision to empty yourself, to sacrifice of yourself so that others may find provision also. The word of God is very clear about the call of every single believer to take of their resources and to take of what they have and give to the work of the church, to give to the work of the gospel, to give to those who are in poverty, to give to those who are suffering and struggling. So the mindset we have is not that we just are always in poverty, but we have the same mindset that Jesus Christ had, which is I have, but I empty myself for the redemption of others. I give of what God has provided for me so that others may be provided for. I think this is important because the ultimate idea of what I'm saying to you is God doesn't doesn't have a plan for us as Christians that says everything's going to be perfect. Everything's going to be easy. The declaration he's making is that we will find ourselves at times without, and that's okay. And we will find ourselves at times in suffering, and that's okay, because he uses those times and he uses those circumstances to deepen our understanding of who he is. Bonnie Pattison, in her book, Poverty and the Theology of John Calvin, described Calvin's view of the sanctifying work that is discovered when we live lives of Christ-like sacrifice. Calvin says says, and describes the life of the believer that bears the cross of poverty and affliction, which he calls the mortification of the outer man. That those lives are being consecrated by the life and death of Christ. That this humble life becomes an instrument of divine grace and blessing for the believer. Hardships create opportunities For the knowledge of God's glory to be revealed in the believer. With adversity, revealing God's glory in a way that is otherwise concealed, where humble living is absent. The experience of bearing the cross, as Calvin says, brings a knowledge of of one's own spiritual poverty, which works to foster humility in the believer. Each one of us, and I think this is important for us to understand and live in, Each one of us is a spiritual beggar before God. We have nothing to offer him, and he's poured out so much to us. When we find ourselves in a place needing to receive from God his provision during difficult times, it humbles us and provides for us a a level of compassion and grace that we otherwise would never understand. Our unwillingness to embrace the gospel life of Christ and instead pursue the comforts of this world prevents us from understanding the nature of God's grace to us. We forfeit the great lessons of his spirit as it is looking to progressively imprint the image of Jesus Christ on us. How can we know Jesus if we don't know the suffering Jesus? How can we know Jesus if we don't know the Jesus who lived without? And we look back at that passage in Philippians 2 that describes the intentional life of humility and sacrifice that Christ took on. You realize that the entire message of that passage is not simply about revealing the sacrifices that Jesus Christ made, but it is about calling us to that same life. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, now I want you to hear that. He's describing being a Christian. If in you there is any of this love, if there's any participation in the Spirit of God, any affection or sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. He is describing us living together one with another in a place of humility and sacrifice. But that's what we're called to. And he says, how does that happen in us? The entire description of Jesus Christ's life that we've been unfolding throughout this morning's message was laid out there for one reason, to teach the church to live that way. To care for one another. To look out for one another. To humble ourselves before one another. to, to, To treat others in a way in which we favor one another more than we favor ourselves. We are called to have the same heart and mind, and life that Christ had in humility and sacrifice. So what I'm saying is this is not simply about an inward-focused idea, but Philippians shows this as the case of Christ living out in you for the benefit of others. And what I want you guys to realize from this more than anything else, it's when we do this, we deepen our faith. We find greater blessing. We know him in ways that we could never ever know him otherwise. This is the pathway for every believer to grow in their faith. Unmistakably, the birth and life and image of Christ calls us to a life of humble sacrifice. There is nothing in the birth, life, message death, resurrection, and glorification of Jesus that provides for individuals to seek after the riches and the glory of this world. There is nothing in his gospel that allows for individuals to seek self-protection or self-preservation or self-pleasure. His life and message call us to something else. And when I think of that, I'm completely challenged by the words of John Wycliffe. Wycliffe was considered one of the first reformers, and he said something that I think captures the way we should view our challenge as followers of Jesus Christ. He says, The life and teaching of Christ are the best mirror. For it is evident that every man who in life and teaching is contrary to Christ, only such a man is a heretic. And every Christian who in life and teaching is conformed to Christ, only such a Christian is removed from heresy. The Christmas season confronts us with an option. Live in accordance with Christ's humility and see his glory rise in your spirit or live in accordance with the selfish consumerism that so marks much of our Christian understanding And that grips our society. And in so doing, you embrace practical heresy. God has so much for us as we follow Jesus. It just requires of us giving ourselves completely to that little child who was born in humility, who lived in humility, who died in humility, and called us to the same. This is where the blessings of God are found. Not in the wealth of this world, but in the poverty that is shown by Jesus Christ in his own life.